You're listening to Frame 25, a monthly micro edition of the Brightwall Darkroom podcast in conversation with and sponsored by our friends at Gallery. Every month, we pick a title from Gallery's curated library and zoom in on a moment to better see the whole. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Berman. And today, we're discussing 1955's one-hit wonder, <laughs> The Night of the Hunter. The Night of the Hunter. We're doing it. Directed by Charles Lawton and starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. What a film, huh? <laughs> what a film. <laughs> so this is in alignment with Duke Johnson's curated list. The video that you'll see on gallery of Johnson talking about Night of the Hunter is pretty great. Yes. <laughs> I really want to highlight a couple of the ways that he describes the film. One is when he's talking about it as a fairy tale that sort of yeah. really explicitly gives us good versus evil. But then he does a lot to describe, I think, very evocatively the style of the film. Yeah. Talks yeah. about it as being like impressionistic. And my favorite phrase that he uses is that, is that it really represents the pageantry of filmmaking. I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of starts off with, hey, what a, what a movie. That's why I started that way too. I know. <laughs> wait, what do you say? What do you say about Man of the Hunter? I when mean, I was watching the video, I was like, this is so Chad Pill. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's the guy, of course, that worked with uh, with Charlie Kaufman on that mm -hmm. uh, stop motion film. So, and he said this kind of inspired his whole. Getting into stop motion animation, all that kind of stuff, which is yeah. fascinating. I mean, obviously one of the most influential films of all time, but to think it's influencing people that are doing stop motion animation, even just because of the design, the sets, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Almost entirely shot on, on sound stages, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And I found a video online, which I guess we can post in the show links, but it was of Lawton actually directing the little boy oh, yeah. in his scene. And then also the girl singing her song, because in the riverboat scene when she's singing, she did sing an acapella version live, but then they decided it wasn't quite yeah. audio-wise. It didn't work quite well, but they have her singing it. That whole clip is online with him directing her. It's amazing. So Awesome. But yeah, it's just, it is such a beautiful film to look at, and it is such an amazing story. And like you said, a fairy tale, which I'm glad, I'm glad Duke brought up in his thing, because that's going to be what I was going to say right off the bat is, it's like a Grimm Brothers fairy tale. Plus German expressionism equals amazing film. And very much like a fairy tale insofar as the plot is like pretty grisly. Yeah. Right. I always think of, I'm sure not the first, but like the big bad wolf kind of idea. Like it. Yeah. It's really one of those things where you, the best kind of fairy tales as a kid. I mean, I don't know if I'd have said this as a kid because they freaked me out as a kid, but we're the kind that freaked you out. But that also, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if this teaches any lessons other than like be wary of Robert Mitchum singing, you know. But yeah, I mean, he's just. It's just so well constructed on every level. And it's amazing that it, you know, it flopped. Uh, critics rejected it. Mm. Lawton didn't even live long enough to see it ever kind of get resurrected, you know. So, so sad. Yeah. And, yeah. and James E.G. had passed away by the time it came out. So it's always very sad when someone doesn't get to know how massively inspirational and influential their, their work was. So. I definitely think that there are lessons to be taken away. And in rewatching it this morning, mm. I was really, really struck with like how, especially in our contemporary climate of far right indoctrination online. Oh yeah, there is that. And the yes. alignment of that with kind of like neo-Christian religiosity. Yeah. That is totally in my mind when I watch something like this. And the line that connects creepy parts of trad Twitter <laughs> to a kind of cult figure, a charismatic cult figure like Charles Manson, yeah. any of these self-appointed authority figures 
who use a combination of charisma and kind of like righteousness Mm -hmm. to exert influence over people. It's so scary and it's so supple in terms of how many contexts we see it in. It is one of the most scary films I've ever seen. Yeah, so scary. No, then that's a great point about the modern context too is as we record on the the middle of another Trump run for president. Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, totally. But the fascinating part, which has not happened yet in the the real world, uh, is that they all turn on on him at the end and go after him which yeah also a really like yeah when's that gonna happen (laughs) but i feel like that's also so cynical because the characters the precisely the characters that we saw kind of like enabling him to insinuate himself in this family and i should say that uh night of the hunter follows like a fake preacher slash serial killer of widows Mm -hmm. harry powers reverend harry powers i'm doing air quotes around reverend preacher not really a reverend played by Mitchum, and he is inserting himself into a family and then searching for stolen money. Both of those things belong to his executed former cellmate. Yes. That's the kind of pipeline for information. But yeah, it's precisely the kind of community members that supported and enabled him and kind of pushed him into a relationship with the Shelley Winters character, Willa, Yes, that are then rioting at the end of the film. But I I don't think that's... A corrective moment at all if anything it just feels like chaos oh i don't mean it's corrective i just uh yeah i just wish it would happen in our current context that when when someone is actually found guilty of all things that, that people do kind of lose some faith in them instead of the opposite but well, i mean we don't need to i mean that's a whole five hour podcast there so so it would be really tempting to just get into like every movement of the plot and scene of this film, but we are going to pick a particular moment. Yes. Chad, you have picked the moment this month, so tell us all about it. Well, it's a moment near the end of the film, not quite there yet, where the children have escaped from Robert Mitchum's character. He has, sorry, this is lots of spoilers here, but he has he's killed their mother and they are on a riverboat down the night trying to get away from him as he's after them. He is trying to find out the location of the money uh, that their father, who was uh, arrested for uh, for stealing the money, had hidden. So he's pursuing them, trying to get their secret, trying to get them. It's Big Bad Wolf is after him. It's really terrifying, but also really poetic and beautiful. They finally land. Uh, this is not the moment yet, sorry. They land and are discovered by a woman who appears to be like a caretaker to a kind of a self-made group home for orphans or something like that they land there and that is played by Lillian Gish famous silent movie star incredible just incredible and who also does start out the film with like a direct you know profile shot of her starting to tell a fairy tale of sorts to the kids so then we don't really see her again until this part and she takes them in it's the first moment in the film, and that's why I picked I picked it for a few reasons. So she, they are in her home at night, uh, and then we hear Robert Mitchum's deep, gravelly baritone start singing a song that he has sung from pretty much the beginning of the film off and on. Uh, Veronica called it a macabre calling card. <laughs> it's uh, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, which is a, a famous church hymnal for anyone who's ever spent any time going to church growing up. It'll be a very familiar song. And he starts to sing that when anytime that that comes on the soundtrack, it's kind of like cue, like, oh, you know, bad shit's about to happen, scary times. So it's got this haunting thing right when he starts. And it's kind of had this weird power the whole time. Uh, Whenever that shows up, it means he's about to do some stuff. Mm. And everyone else is just kind of at his mercy. For the first time, though, uh, Lillian Gish is sitting there in the chair. And once he gets through his first verse, she does this thing which hits on two levels because this is exactly what happened in every church I ever grew up in. For some reason, churches that I grew up in love to sing songs in rounds. 
So we'd have like half the congregation singing this one round, and then the second time through, then the so the people would join in. Usually, it would separate into men and women. So so here, she actually starts singing in the second verse with him in a round, and it's like this symbolically like powerful kind of defiance of him and standing up to him. It finally is meeting that creepiness and evil with good and love, <laughs> and also protection. And the entire film, so much of it is told almost through the children's eyes mm. that. This is the first time that you ever feel like, oh, someone's finally got their back. Someone's not going to let something mm-hmm. happen. Um, so it's that kind of like cathartic thing. Like they, they're not on their own anymore. They've been on their own seemingly, especially John, this whole movie, uh, the young boy. And finally, they have someone singing back to him while holding a gun and being like, oh, no, nope, you're not going to mess with these kids. Mm-hmm. She sits up uh, and protects them throughout throughout the night, chases the bad guy off. After a wonderful little, I got to mention the owl, the owl and the bunny. <laughs> A little owl and a bunny come in there on the screen, and uh, very clearly the owl is going to eat the bunny. And she says that wonderful line of, you know, life is so hard for such small things or something like that. In scene. The moment she joins in on the round is my micro moment, and the two-minute scene is my overall moment. Yeah, that's a great moment. I mean, Lillian Gish is so powerful, such a powerful force of good in this movie. And, you know, I'm so reminded watching this back of... Shadow of a Doubt and Uncle Charlie mm-hmm. and just like another movie in the earlier decade that gives us this kind of seductive interloper who mm-hmm. comes in and like, you know, especially Powell's interactions with the oldest girl orphan that Gish's Rachel is f- kind of fostering Ruby. He kind of like uses the flirtation with Ruby, yeah. even though he is like pretty resolutely like hates women and like yes, hates yes. feminine wiles <laughs> um, and kills over it. But yeah. anyway, in Shadow of It Out too, we have this kind of like musical calling card, this motif that mm-hmm. happens Absolutely. every time the Mary Widow Waltz happens on screen. We have this like weird insert shot yeah. from nowhere that I find endlessly fascinating and enigmatic. And then here too, we have the same kind of musical motif. And it is so interesting to see another faithful person, like a truly faithful person. A truly faithful one, yeah. Like yeah. All that's good in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about all that's good in the world. I feel like for yeah. me, there's still like <laughs> enough wariness. Yeah. Because you really see what an institution like religion can protect and enable. And I don't know that even in the film that's totally like reversed by the fact that Rachel is so authentically faithful. But it's an interesting tension. And just one of the ways that the movie is so much more complex and like lyrical and doesn't settle for being simple. No, It just is (laughs) such a shame that it was received so poorly I know, I know. Yeah. The use of the religious iconography uh, in the film. Again, I just keep coming back to all how all of the parts seem crafted so well. Oh, but it's, I mean, if you read the reviews now, the more modern day, like Roger Ebert or even Pauline Kael or whatever, they'll just say it's like straight up one of the most terrifying movies ever made. But it's all in that, I think it's all in that tension that just runs throughout the whole thing and the way that it's shot and framed and the music. I mean, the score itself, too, on top of this kind of heavy-handed, bombastic, like, this guy's bad score that will come mm-hmm. on. If you get that religious stuff in there, I mean, it's just like, yeah, Southern Gothic, right, I guess would be mm-hmm. what we're looking at here. Yeah. But at a time before that was kind of, well, mid-50s, I don't know. Is that around much? Appalachian Gothic. Yeah. And then, man... Those kids, too. Those kids just, they don't scare me, but identifying way too much with them throughout the film scares me to death. 
because I often felt like, you know, I was on my own. I was not at all, by the way. It's just my own anxiety. But mm. often felt like stuff was going to happen and I needed someone around to protect me or whatever as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's, you know, Lillian Gish uh, showing up and, and being this person that finally mm. is an adult on their side who sees through this guy. It's just a wonderful thing. And then and then meeting him with his own music and, you know, using his own his own song against him is wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. Too bad it was dismissed as already pretentious trash but <laughs> yeah what did they know in the 50s in the eyes of coyote cinema and bright wall yeah. room we're all yeah. about night of the hunter <laughs> yeah thanks for listening to another installment of our bite-sized monthly series in conversation with and sponsored by our friends at gallery and we'd actually love for you to join the conversation as well we're going to be having a live discussion on night of the hunter on gallery's platform on saturday october 28th at 2 p.m eastern 11 a.m. Pacific time, and we'd love to talk with you about this film. To join the conversation, and we would really like you to come. I've now, you know, Chad and I have done one on Daisies. I did one on Birth. They've been totally fun and interesting as a teacher. I've never, even a remote teacher, I've never really had the experience of conversing with completely invisible interlocutors (laughs) and not even conversing with, but sort of presenting to, as my understanding is many of you are logged in and just voyeurs of the conversation yeah. so don't yeah. be afraid to talk to chad and i we're really up. Yeah. approachable um okay <laughs> <laughs> so to join the conversation and see the rest of duke johnson's great great list sign up at join.gallery.com slash bwdr our theme music is composed by chad perman this podcast is produced and edited by eli sands and robert mitchum what uh, I do not share a credit with Robert Mitchum. He's dead. <laughs> you showed him. <laughs>